Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Lara Unterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. It is a new month, July, and a new theme, and we have been covering some pretty heavy topics recently, so we thought it might be fun to cover a mental health topic that's a bit on the lighter side. As much as mental health discussions ever can Mm -hmm. be lighter, I think our discussion today is going to be a little bit lighter. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely anticipating that email now, though, from someone. Oh, How I dare know. you call it light, but. Well, and y'all, I, I didn't want to say this before we started recording, but my dad is actually a shark. So I have a lot mm-hmm. of thoughts that I want to unpack <laughs> about my dad in this episode. I'm kidding. <laughs> my, my dad is a giant boat. Uh oh. And my dad is Roy Schneider. <laughs> oh. So buckle up, listeners, because we're unpacking some shit. Anyways, so today we are talking about phobias and we are kicking it off with the granddaddy of horror blockbusters jaws yay i'm so excited but before we do that i'm just kind of laughing at how i just cheered for myself and i'm just gonna (laughs) keep going with it Uh, but before we do we're gonna give a brief synopsis in case you haven't seen jaws or if it's been a while and uh, guys I'm i'm getting word that the spoiler alert is not working so just keep rolling the film. We'll figure it out. And the spoiler alert is probably not going to work until like the last part of the episode. And then, but I think it'll turn out to be like an accidental cinematic genius moment. So mm, I, ah, I don't know if that bit landed, but I <laughs> went for it. So yeah, so here's your spoiler alert. Very good. And uh, to the listeners out there in Radio Land, I apologize for having some technical difficulties. So I am going to sound like this. Does it sound like you're underwater being attacked? Yes, I'm actually reporting today from under the ocean blue. I'm in an octopus under the sea. Ooh. Um, I'd like to be. (laughs) I think I said that subliminally because you were sipping from your revolver mug. (laughs) Ah, nice. Yeah. (laughs) All right. We open underwater. A menacing presence lurks in the ocean depths. Some teens are partying on the beach at dusk. One of them, Chrissy, goes skinny dipping with a drunken paramour. Swimming out boldly while her dud of a date passes out in the sand, she's pulled underwater by an unseen force. On a bright summer morning, we meet Martin Brody and his wife, Ellen, a delightful couple and parents of two boys. Brody's the new police chief in the small beach town of Amity, fresh off the mean streets of New York City. (laughs) He's called to investigate a body that washed up on the beach. It's Chrissy, but there's not much left of her. After speaking to the medical examiner and learning that the probable cause of death was shark attack, Brody rushes to close the beaches, keeping the tourists who are flooding the summer town from meeting the same fate. But not so fast. 
He's accosted by the J. Crew Mafia, led by the town's mayor, who make him an offer to not close the beaches he can't refuse. <laughs> They've got conclusive scientific proof that everything's fine and no shark would dare attack Amity on the 4th of July. AKA, they don't want to lose tourism revenue and are full of shit. <laughs> Later at the beach, the townsfolk soak up the sun and children splash in the water, unaware of any possible danger. Except for Brody, who maintains a sweaty vigil from the safety of the shore. <laughs> the famous score throbs as we peep the shark's eye view. Jaws is back and he goes after one of the kids, little Alex Kittner. As people panic and rush out of the water, Alex's distraught mother searches for her son. He's the only one who doesn't emerge, though his punctured, blood-stained raft does. Brody leads a town hall meeting where he says he's going to close the beaches. And everyone loses their fucking minds because the economy! <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Mayor Anchor Jacket reads the room and says it's only going to be for 24 hours. Okay, I can't do. I was gonna <laughs> I know. Oh. <laughs> so awful. Scratch fingers on nails on a chalkboard. An old seed codger <laughs> <laughs> named Quint is lurking in the back of the room, having drawn an insensitive picture on the chalkboard and apparently prepared a speech. He asks the town to pay him to kill the shark before walking out with the confidence of someone who knows this ain't their first time at the shark rodeo. <laughs> With the potential for a cash bounty, every lame brain, chucklehead, and nimrod in New England is determined to catch the shark. Meanwhile, a denim-clad young man from the Oceanographic Institute arrives. He knows some stuff about sailboats and also sharks. He's Matt Hooper, shark expert and total Dreyfus. Ooh. <laughs> I just wanted to call him a total Dreyfus. Dreamboat Dreyfus. <laughs> <laughs> This is the oh. only time Richard <laughs> Dreyfus could even possibly be described as attractive. I will give you that. Yeah. I know. it's it's. I, you know what? The heart wants what the heart wants. <laughs> I get it. He, I went, get it. <laughs> he aged like 20 years between this and Close Encounters. He did. Yeah. He really did. He connects with Brody and game recognized game. <laughs> <laughs> also strangely hot, you know? <laughs> yeah, totally. No. Now, uh, yeah, we can talk about Roy Schneider later. <clears throat> oh, yeah, I've got <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> these, are t these are two reasonable dudes in an unreasonable situation. Hooper asks to see Chrissy's remains and chastises Hooper and the coroner for ever suggesting that it could have been a boat accident. Boat accident. Sorry, I'm struggling yeah. to get through the synopsis today. I always feel like it should be boating accident, but he does say boat accident. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Some words just clunk off the tongue like chunky peanut butter <laughs> okay <laughs> here we go back at the docks local yokels have caught a shark but not the shark quint cruises by laughing and hooper rains on everyone's parade though they're incapable of taking in basic information and refuse to listen to him alex kittner's mom shows up to blame brody for not for not closing the beaches Brody, in a classy move, doesn't tell her it was really Mayor Asshole's fault. Instead, he internalizes the guilt. Hooper comes to have dinner with the Brody family and partake in some character development. <laughs> we learn why Brody is afraid of the water and just how deep Hooper's shark passion flows. They decide to find out if the tiger shark the townsfolk caught is the shark once and for all. If it's their guy, his tummy will be full of little boy. So they sneak off into the night to cut it open and see what's inside. 
And a surprise to no one, it's just fish and junk. No human remains. The big bad is still out there, and it's a night feeder. <sighs> also the name of my dark wave synth album. <laughs> Which I don't understand how they think it's a night feeder. There are two it, deaths at that point, and, and they're both one of them feet. is in broad daylight. It's yeah. it's a little that for the first time watching this, I was like, that doesn't make sense. And then I was yeah. like, no, this is a perfect movie. Right. <laughs> don't think about it. <laughs> it's shark science. You know, plus three if you count Pippin the dog. Oh, that's Pour right. one out for Pippin. Pippin. I forgot about Pippin. I had that in my notes and then I repressed it. <laughs> yeah, there's part of me that refuses to accept that. <laughs> yes. After some Dave oh, too. I, <laughs> Dave's not into it, dude. That wasn't Dave. That oh. was a different dog. I thought that was Dave. It's not Dave. That's really funny. Okay. Let's resume. Where was I? Night Peter. Okay. After some controlling from Hooper, they go night boating and make a grim discovery. Ben Gardner's abandoned boat. Hooper dons a wetsuit, swims over to investigate, and finds Gardner's sharkified head. Yikes! Brody and Hooper try to talk some sense into Mayor Anchor Jacket. Naturally, he's not having it because the economy! Uh, Good mm. thing this is just a movie, lol. Mm hmm. <laughs> Happy Fourth of July. The beaches are bumping and the shark is cruising, but no one wants to swim. Who can say why? The mayor convinces a family that it's their patriotic duty to risk their lives to prove that everything is okay and that the all-American illusion of safety and perfection is more important than actually being safe. Again, just a movie. <laughs> it, totally. Mm-hmm. No, no, no relation to anything. Nah, that would never happen. No, never. Not in this country. No. Uh, <laughs> begrudgingly, they get in the water and the crowd follows. Almost immediately, swimmers see a shark fin and everyone panics but it's a false alarm and two kids playing a practical joke will definitely be grounded later. <laughs> but this proves to be a deadly distraction from the real shark who is gunning it through the estuary and kills a very nice man in a rowboat. After this, Brody is finally able to convince mayor asshole that they need to close the beaches. They hire Quint to catch the shark, but only on the condition that Brody and Hooper get to come with. It's orca time. Let's Moby Dick this thing. <laughs> See hijinks ensue as the trio hunts down the shark. I'm not even going to try and do justice to this part of the film, and if you haven't seen it, what are you doing with yourself? Turn this <laughs> GD podcast off right now and go watch one of the longest and best action slash storytelling sequences ever committed to celluloid. Second mm-hmm. I just can't. I can't. Yeah. It's perfect, yeah. It's really, it really just perfect. Is. Yeah. <laughs> After a long day involving chum, ropes, and barrels, the sun sets and they still haven't caught the shark. The boys hang below deck where they compare scars, sing sea shanties, and Quint delivers one of the greatest monologues in film history. I will now murmur several of the lines in my best Quint impression. Ooh. Black eyes, like a doll's eyes, 1100 men went in the water, 316 came out, oh, those eyes roll over white, oh, yeah, farewell to do to you fast Spanish lady. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> I was waiting for one of you just to stop me. Oh. None of you did, oh, so no. you, all, you failed. I was intoxicated. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite thing to do is just say black guys, black dolls, guys. Their bonding session is interrupted by Jaws body slamming into the boat and causing severe damage to the hull. They shoot it with guns and harpoon it, and nothing is working, and the boat is taking on water, and Quint smashes the radio, and it's just not looking good, folks. Luckily, Hooper brought some science with him. <laughs> 
filling up a dart with poison, they lower him in a shark cage and his man bait. If Hooper can get the shark in the mouth, maybe they still have a chance. That's what he said. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it doesn't work as the shark sneak attacks Hooper from behind. <laughs> 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 Hooper drops the poison and escapes to hide in some reef that probably no longer exists. (laughs) We um, just want to point out that Hooper is one of the great Butterfingers in cinematic. Oh, yeah. Drops Uh drops the tooth, drops the spear. What a Butterfinger. Yeah, I would not let him hold a baby. (laughs) No. The shark manages to eat the boat out. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't even mean for that to sound dirty. <laughs> I didn't. Oh I just God. until it came out. Oh no! Uh, I'm Jaws, sorry. Jaws after dark. I know. <laughs> He's a night feeder. Anyway, <laughs> unlike Batman, Jaws goes down. Yep. Now is the part the of the podcast depth. where we all just lose it. Uh, <laughs> he eats from under Quint before eating him on a lot. <laughs> I'm drunk, you guys. I swear, I haven't been drinking from under Quint before eating him alive in a moment that was never really edited for television, was it? They just showed all of that to little child Lara, didn't they? <laughs> With Brody the only one still on the swiftly sinking boat, he evades the shark. Thinking remarkably fast on his feet for a man in this situation, he manages to get Jaws to eat a canister full of highly flammable compressed air. After one last tense action sequence, Brody shoots the canister and the shark explodes. Hooray! Hooper reemerges and the two reunite, swimming safely to shore. That's fucking Jaws, bitch. Jaws! I mean, I guess we can assume that they swim safely to shore because of the jaunty music. Yeah, there's jaunty music. It ends on a shot of the shore. Yeah. If they didn't make it, I give up. (laughs) Right. I mean, Hooper is not in the sequel. No, know. but he's. They say that he's on, like he went on that excursion that he missed the first time around. Oh, that's right. Not, the so. the aurora. You know who is yeah. in the sequel? Brody and his tan arms. Yeah. <laughs> Brody and his <laughs> leathery forearms. His leathery yeah. forearm. I don't know why I find him so hot in the second movie. <laughs> I mean, he was twenty two just... years old when he filmed this movie. Are you kidding me? No, you're fucking yes, with Yes, I am kidding with you. But okay, okay. I would be like, <laughs> what happened to people in the 70s if yeah. that's well, the case? The, <laughs> before the chain, sunscreen. Chain smoking and fucking suntan lotion is what Right, happens. they used to just wear those, like sit out with mm-hmm. those mirrors, you know? You got <laughs> yeah. Larry just ripping butts in the hospital <laughs> ER like it's no one's business. <laughs> well, Roy is one of those guys that's just like, if you look at him from any objective lens is an ugly, ugly man, but just friggin' hot for some reason. I thought he was a good looking man. I thought he was a good looking man. He's just odd looking. He's got like one of those grizzled faces, AKA my favorite kind of face. Yeah. Something about it just works, you know, Mm -hmm. comes together. Well, now let's do a feelings check. And this is when we share our first experience with Jaws and how we feel when we watch it. And Mike, would you care to begin? Sure. So I don't really know what there is to say about Jaws that hasn't already been said for the past 46 years. You know, it's like, it's the birth of the modern blockbuster. And it basically, it's changed how movies are made, changed how they were marketed, changed how they were released. And like 46 years later, like the way we make movies and market them and put them in theaters, like it's, it's still done this way. It is like the perfect movie. And it's much like The Exorcist, like Jaws is the measuring stick 
for this kind of movie. Just like every Exorcism movie will inevitably get compared to The Exorcist, Jaws is the measuring stick that all other shark or really even any killer animal movies. Mm-hmm. You, know, you saw in the wake of Jaws, like Jaws, but with a grizzly bear, Jaws, but with a whale, you know. Mm-hmm. Jaws, um, but with dinosaurs at a park. Right. Like, but Michael Myers is basically Jaws, like Halloween 1978. What is Michael Myers but like a great white shark in human form? Yeah. Uh, like this blank slate with dark eyes, you know, soulless eyes killing machine. It's kind of like soulless eyes, like the butthole of a cat, because that's exactly. what we're Exactly. So you're looking at my tailless cat's butthole. <laughs> but he loves his daddy. Aww. It's very cute. Yeah. Please don't fart, Sam. <laughs> So, you know, it's one of those things where, like, whenever another shark movie comes out, it's not, oh, you know, will this be better than Jaws? But it's like, oh, how close might it manage to get uh, if we're lucky? This was definitely a staple of my childhood in the days before we had a VCR or even cable television. Um, It was on TV, like, at least three times a year. Probably the only movie that ran more often would have been, like, The Wizard of Oz at this time. Um, and maybe it's a wonderful life, but I actually didn't catch that till I was a full grown adult. We never missed it when it was on. It's one of those movies you looked forward to when it would come on. It remains perfect. Like 46 years later, this movie remains absolutely perfect. The politics and the economics of this movie, like the, they resonate in a different way after last year. But if anything, like it serves to kind of strengthen the movie and not weaken it. Mm-hmm. And it's an exercise in how like less is more. How the fact that you have Bruce the shark and it just doesn't work. And you have, I think in lesser hands, like Spielberg is obviously, I mean, what can you say? Mm-hmm. Just even at that young age going, okay, well, we're going to find a way to make this work anyway. Uh, and just by sheer force of will, making this thing happen and having it come out like it does. Like it just remains just, wonderful yeah laura what about you yeah this movie fucking slaps like it just totally whips ass and slaps butt just <laughs> fucking it's just ugh, this movie rules mm-hmm. i mean it's just so viscerally enjoyable while also being perfectly crafted piece of cinema from top to bottom with the exception of night feeding you can't find a flaw on this thing Every time I watch it, and I've watched it countless times, I am as enraptured by it as I was the first time, you know? And, like, how many movies can you say that about? Like, it is just so... I'm, I I get... I, I feel like I sink into it when I watch it, <laughs> no pun intended, because it's <laughs> like... I just get so caught up in thinking to myself, why is the pacing of this so good? Mm-hmm. Why is it so absorptive? Why am I still surprised by things, even though I've seen it a bazillion times? There's always a moment that I forget and one little zinger that gets me. This time it was when they were on the boat and one of those um, barrels flies by at an unexpected moment and almost gets Ray Schneider in the head, you know? Um, mm-hmm. There's just like little, little, some, a little something every time you watch it that you notice. Uh, also, another thing I noticed this time that I had never really picked up on before was like Quint yelling at women, not because they were women, but because they're not as tough as the women of the greatest generation. You know, <laughs> like that was just such a, fun, you know, just so much amazing characterization, everything. I could go on about this for days. And as Mike pointed out, many people have, and it's all been said. Um, was edited by a woman and, and Verna Fields, and, and it's just there's the attention to detail. It's so good, and and beyond all that, it's really 
last year when I watched it for the 4th of July, as I often do, it hit me for pandemic reasons, you know, in response to disaster. And now that we're a little bit out of the immediate moment of disaster, it's it hit me that this is really a movie about trauma and how people respond to disaster and what happens in the wake of it and what we do with it and how it shapes the narrative of our life. And so it ended up, you know, even though we're taking this for a, a fun spin, ostensibly with phobias, it's, it was just like, oh man, there, there's so much there. It's like still waters run deep to just stick with the, the seafaring theme here. I think I just a masterpiece and Spielberg when he's, when he's good, he's great. Mm-hmm. And this movie is a great movie. And, and like, and, and, and similar experience to Mike, I definitely saw this cause it was on TV all yeah. the goddamn time. Like every single day it felt like, and um, I remember it was one of those movies just you know, again, like I've discussed, I was a sensitive child, but for some reason I would always want to watch this movie. And then the, you know, the moment with like the leg floating in the water when I would always run screaming from the room and then a minute later run back in and I'd have to watch the rest of it. You know, Mm -hmm. it's just so immensely entertaining and watchable. It's a classic for a reason. Yeah. Um, I absolutely love this movie. I've said it's in my top 10 for a long time. Um, and I do remember the first time I watched it, I was probably like 10 or so. And I had a friend over and I think it was Halloween or something. And I was like, Oh, we're going to, I'm going to have a friend over. We're going to watch a really scary movie. I was like, what's the scariest movie? And we rented Jaws. And that was kind of an awakening for me that there are different types of, or there are different ways to be scared by things, you know? So like the first time I watched it, I did not have this reaction. I was like, "What? when's it going to get scary? When when am I going to have that Halloween moment I was really looking for? And then I watched it probably a year or two later. And I was like, oh, this movie is amazing. It's just not what I wanted it to be the first time I watched it. But what it is, is just, it is a perfect movie. I think it's fantastic. It's so, it's fun too. You know, it is very scary, but there's like this adventure quality to it that's really fun. Sharks are my favorite animal. I think they're so fucking cool, even though I am terrified of them. Um, And it's just, it's so cool. It's so like visually rich and like textually rich. There's always something to notice, you know, especially with like that, that kind of Spielberg quality or at least early Spielberg way of like the wackadoodle townspeople and like Mike I know you had some notes about the the karate kids who are like running around chopping things like things like that it's just like you notice those things and then you're still just swept away and I think it's gorgeous there's just it's um, I was reading this review of it in prepare preparation for this. And it's funny because it does look dated. It does not look like this takes place now, but it doesn't feel dated because mm-hmm. I feel like the heart of this movie holds up, especially after like Laura, what you were just talking about and Mike too, like what we have all just been through. And it's been kind of like two, like the stand and jaws are things that like were written and created in the seventies and just the heart of those stories. I think we still, we see still hold up and still can, we can still learn a lot from those kinds of narratives, mm-hmm. which I th- just think is fantastic. So, yeah. So I think last year when there were no new movies coming out and theaters were closed, but we saw the revival of drive-in theaters mm-hmm. to the point where like in the past year, two new ones have opened up within 30 minutes of me, oh, wow. which is awesome. And like one is being pitched as like a more upscale drive-in in terms of like their <laughs> offerings, like mm. food and whatnot. So we're pretty excited to try it out. Nice. Um, Only fancy cars, please. <laughs> yes. You have, to, yes. Um, you have to be in a Rolls Royce. Right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> 
but like the jaws and back to the future were like every single drive-in like played it almost every night yeah again like back to the future is an example of another like perfect movie like that's that screenplay is taught in script writing classes like this is the perfect script really Mm -hmm. And I think at one point in the summer, like the number one movie in America was actually Jaws again mm-hmm. because That's of like awesome. how many people were going. So yeah, it's just like how this movie resonates so many years later. It's just like you make the John Williams like theme noise, like those, like that just Donna, like that two yeah. note and everyone knows what, yeah. you're, what you're referring to right away. And I've taught that um, in my classes, even mm-hmm. with, like when I was teaching elementary music, even with young kids, like they mm-hmm. know what that is. Like it is pervasive and it's yeah. just two notes and it's amazing. Yeah. And what I think is so fascinating about Jaws, if I look at also Jurassic Park, which is another movie that I, I think is a perfect movie and I think was also big on the, the drive-ins last mm-hmm. year. It's like these movies that are horror but don't feel like horror. So like I feel yeah. like they have this wider reach that I can say, no, you do like a horror movie because this falls under the umbrella you know not to be that person but (laughs) no it is it's true it's like people horror movies do still have a stigma like when you when you enter into normie circles and you say you're into horror people would kind of look at you Mm -hmm. suspiciously a little bit yeah yeah and it's like jaws is absolutely a horror movie jurassic park absolutely a horror movie yeah, yeah, but right. they don't feel like it, and I feel like my kids could probably watch Jaws and probably well, it, be okay. It shows what a giant umbrella that horror is, and uh-huh. how much can actually fall under it. Like no one would ever mistake, say, Seven with a romantic comedy, like, <laughs> right? And it's like, oh, well, what's, what in, the what <laughs> what's ta- in the box? What's in the box? It's not rain. <laughs> so, oh. But it's like a whole, with horror, there are so many things like you know fantasy and action and adventure can still kind of all fall under that umbrella mm-hmm. which i love anyways well so we've mentioned that millions of people have said millions of words about this movie and you know but i think we're taking a slightly different approach mm-hmm. to it one that i really haven't heard much we're going to be talking about phobias today mm-hmm. and so mike let's talk about our mental health issue all right so Far be it for me to jinx this month, but it does feel lighter than the past couple topics we've covered. Knock on wood. Yeah, knock on wood at this point. Like it maybe in two weeks I'll be a sobbing mess about <laughs> something. Um, I'll tell you about my how I'm terrified of bees. Mm. But in some ways, we're really circling back to the origins of our show as we talk about phobias because they're classified under the anxiety spectrum of disorders in the hmm. DSM-5. So. This month, we're going to, here's what we're going to do. We're going to briefly cover what the difference between a phobia and like, say, garden variety fear is. We'll talk about the subcategories that exist in phobias. And we'll talk a little bit more about the specific ones we see in Jaws when we talk about Chief Brody. Next time we'll talk, we'll talk about ways to treat phobias. And there's going to be an emphasis on exposure therapy, Mm. which this movie is a fantastic example of exposure therapy. Very extreme exposure therapy. It doesn't get much better than this. So one note, because I do think people will ask, like it will come up either in emails or online. For the purposes of staying track, we're going to not touch on agoraphobia and social anxiety disorder, which is basically social phobia. Both of those have their own listings in the DSM-5. So agoraphobia will be probably at some point, uh, I think we've already mentioned a couple movies off air mm-hmm. that would like really fall under that. That's like the fear of like wide open spaces. So. Yeah. 
So this falls under uh, a specific phobia in the DSM. And what that is defined as is an irrational and intense fear of like a concrete object or a situation, like it's something very specific. The distress that is caused by this fear is overwhelming to the point that it impedes a person's like social, emotional, educational, or occupational functioning. Functioning. So the key criteria is the level of fear and anxiety caused by the situation or the object is really out of proportion and much more highly elevated than the situation actually calls for. The phobic reaction is pretty much immediate upon exposure to it. Like the minute that you're exposed to this phobia, or even if you know you're going to be, your panic response goes like it's like spinal tap it goes to 11 Mm -hmm. and it goes to it right away so it's different from say standard anxiety in both the intensity and the duration in the physical and physiological reactions so we've talked about anxiety before like anxiety in and of itself is not always a bad thing like anxiety can give you that either a jolt of adrenaline or b kind of cue you that like oh this thing coming up is like really important and i need to concentrate and focus my energy on it so for example you might experience a moment of anxiety prior to having to give a speech or if you have to take say like a big test uh if you want to get into university or grad school uh before you take the field before a ball game or before you make a presentation to like a client where you're trying to seal a large deal and you know with some practice of coping strategies most people can navigate these situations and they can start to manage to get their anxiety under control with the phobia like the reaction is so intense and so overwhelming that the person usually they have to remove themselves from the situation before they can even start the process of calming down and even then it can take like a very long time in order for a person to do it one of the things about these phobias is a person will go out of their way to avoid exposure to that phobia so they will just make sure that they are not going to give themselves nearly any opportunity for them to be at risk for having to experience what they're afraid of, if it's at all possible. The symptoms have to last for longer than six months for the diagnosis to be given. And I know this has come up before, like, doesn't mean that a person doesn't have the phobia until like day 183. Like, nope. Basically, that duration is there in order to give like professionals the opportunity to see if it's something that's going to pass or if it's going to lessen in intensity over time, or if they need to explore something else, like maybe it's panic disorder, maybe it's an acute form of obsessive compulsion disorder, uh, or maybe there is another incapacitating illness at play, like agoraphobia, and maybe that's the true root cause of it. And they want to determine that in order to make sure they get like the proper treatment and the best possible treatment. What is new to the DSM-5 compared to the previous versions of it is in the past, the individual had to know that they were afraid of this thing and that they were irrationally afraid of it. They had to say like, you know, I'm terrified of sharks, even though I live in Idaho and there's Mm -hmm. absolutely zero, like how ridiculous is that? But Mm -hmm. I'm this scared of it. Um, And the DSM-5, the individual never has to, they don't have to recognize that their fears are out of proportion to the reality of the situation in order to receive that diagnosis. So what are the five types or categories of specific phobias? There is the natural or environmental 
phobia, which is like fear of different kinds of weather, for example, like thunder and lightning or rainstorms or snowstorms. There's like fear of like natural elements like fire or water, uh, which is uh, aquaphobia, which is what we're going to probably talk about when we talk about Brody. Mm-hmm. There are injury related phobias where they're related to like physical harm, like the fear of needles, which is triphanophobia, or fear of the dentist, which is just called being a rational human being, <laughs> um, or dentophobia, if you want to be specific. Why are you such an um, anti dentite, Mike? <laughs> an anti dentite, excellent. So, uh, I love Seinfeld. I just- um, <laughs> There is like the category of fear of animals, like fear of specific animals or insects, Um, situational um, phobias that are triggered by specific situations like fear of tight spaces or claustrophobia, fear of traveling on a boat or riding in a car. And then finally, there is other, uh, which I love the other category, which is (laughs) Uh basically anything that doesn't fit in the above, like fear of choking, vomiting, loud noises, things like that. Wet bread is one of mine. Oh my god, that's oh. sorry. Not like wet bread from like sopping up like hamburger juice, like just well that too, but just like I don't oh. like bread to, to, that's not toasted to this day. Sorry, that's a whole another another topic. That's that's going to be its own theme one month. <laughs> well, you eat like bread that's um just out of the bag no nope. or does it have to be toasted has to be toasted okay. yeah it's too mushy it reminds me too of a, mushy yeah okay. traumatic experience of spilling milk on my sandwich sorry okay <laughs> well there you go thing. well there you go that raises the question what causes a phobia mm. and ah. there are a few <laughs> things to play what a segue i know there was um, a point to my ramblings <laughs> love it so our own experiences do play a role So traumatic events can cause a person to become phobic of something. Uh, To give you an example, like my sister, when she was younger, got when she first got her license, she managed to get in two car accidents driving on the highway. Mm. And to this day, she personally won't drive on the highway. Mm. Like other people can, she can be a passenger, but she herself won't drive on the highway. She just can't do it. Mm -hmm. So like when she drives to see my mom, like she will take the longest route possible from Maine all the way down to Massachusetts. Oh, wow. A person's temperament can play a part. If you're someone who's generally more inhibited or overly cautious, you could be at higher risk to develop a phobia of something. I have no idea what that's like. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I don't either. (laughs) And then genetics can play a role. So if a family member um, has anxiety disorder or they suffer from a certain phobia, um, there is a higher prevalence that phobias could run throughout the family. In terms of like the general how prevalent this is, like it's actually really high. Like from reading the DSM five, it was somewhere around like seven uh sorry, seven to nine percent of the general population has a phobia of some kind. Really? Um which is a seems like, I mean, when you think like anxiety, depression. They're like around like the one to two percent scale. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there are degrees of phobias, like, and everybody is going to experience something like a slightly different way. Like, I personally am terrified of bees. Mm-hmm. It's gotten better over time, but I remember like when we bought our garden condo years ago, which we no longer are. Bees made a nest in the under our porch, and when I fired up the grill one night. 
um, B started to come up and I ran in the house and said, get your coat. We're going out to dinner. They're like, what about the grill? And I'm like, don't care. Like there are bees. Not happening. Right. My, the bees can have the grill now. The bees live here. <laughs> yeah. My wife asked me to take her when we were in England at her, in her home visiting her parents. Like on her birthday, all she wanted was like a really nice, like fancy afternoon at a tea place she really liked in Foy, which is this really posh little area. And we were sitting outside drinking our tea and all of a sudden bees came out and I, I lost it. And I'm like, how I actually accosted the <laughs> manager. I'm like, how dare you not treat this place for bees? Good, sir. Don't you know that people are <laughs> alert? You know, we can't be here. Like I was like running and she's like, Hey, thanks for ruining my Aww. birthday. You jackass. So it's like, that's all right, baby. I'll give you the best 48 seconds. You later on. <laughs> You can cut or leave that part, Jen, when you edit. You can decide what to do with it. I mean, I'm going to leave it in unless I get a text from Mike saying, please cut this out. <laughs> she, we joke like this all the time. So I, think I was going to say, I just love to know how, you know, as, as the only unmarried member of the pod, just how, how marriages work. You know, I just love, I love the That's, inside baseball. That's pretty much prayer. it. Yeah. Wing and a prayer. Well, and so not to minimize that, but I do want to ask. Um, the 48. Like, seconds. <laughs> <or> the- <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, you, you're the one that minimized it, Mike. <laughs> uh, yeah, literally. <laughs> no, I was going to ask. So like there's no, no, no. Um, so, but there's like, that would be an like maybe over the top reaction. So yes, it would be as opposed to just, Hey, there are bees here. Can we move to a different table or something? It was Which a reaction is how- that was far greater than the situation called for it to be okay and that's kind of the way that i have understood phobias mm-hmm. in the past versus fears because like i no. like i have a scar thing and it's caused mm-hmm. me to like not clean wounds that have later gotten infected you know as mm-hmm. opposed to just i don't like talking about them you know because yeah. i think the word phobia is like really overused in a lot of ways you know yeah and i think people kind of conflate them and i wanted to ask too about aquaphobia, which I I know you said Mm -hmm. we're going to talk to when we talk about Brody, but I hear, and I would say myself, like, I don't have a fear of water, but I have a fear of open water. So is that still aquaphobia? I think that's more agoraphobia. I think that falls under the fear of wide open spaces because Mm -hmm. I think that's more fear of the unknown. And there are legitimate reasons to be afraid of the ocean. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's (laughs) there's undertow. There, you know, Cthulhu lives there. (laughs) As we've seen in the space documentary uh, Underwater. (laughs) There is like, you know, the fear of drowning. There is the fear of like the unknown of like what does look. Because the ocean is so vast. Like we are not categorized. Germs. Yeah. All sorts of like weird sea infections. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can, you know, if you need, if any, if you ever need someone mm -hmm. to list all the rational reasons to be afraid of literally anything, just come to me. (laughs) I will have it ready for you. Yeah. And I think the (laughs) the key difference, so I think that falls under agoraphobia. I think the key difference between fear and a phobia is like fear naturally comes up. Like there are situations that are going to be, that do come up in someone's life where it's natural to be afraid Mm -hmm. and that's going to trigger your fight, flight, or, or freeze response. Like for example, like if you're in a bad neighborhood and there are no streetlights and you're not familiar with your surroundings, like, you know, of course you're going to be fear. Does it mean that you're afraid of the dark? No. Um, if they're, you know, you're at school and there's like, you know, 
you have to be afraid of like shooters now. Mm-hmm. You know, like if there's like a shooting drill, like it's there are things and it, it what fear can help you do is it can help you plan f- ahead of time in a way to better react to certain situations. So you can be more proactive where and I maybe I'm overstating this, but with a phobia, it's there's such avoidance of it that if you're exposed, you're almost incapacitated until Mm. you're removed Mm -hmm. or the stimulus is removed where with fear there's almost like it's a good thing to have like it's okay to be afraid of a hot stove because if you touch it you will be burned therefore you're smart and you check your burners before you go or you put your hot pots in a certain way when they're boiling with water so you don't accidentally knock them over Mm -hmm. And I would say, I mean, I think you sort of hinted at this earlier, the the bridge between these two things is anxiety and anxiety disorder and panic Mm -hmm. disorder, because it starts to become more diffuse. And I Mm -hmm. am definitely not speaking from personal experience here, where you can just sort of see a few too many of those possibilities and ways things can go wrong to the point where it becomes overwhelming and you become generally avoidant of a whole category of things, whether that can be social situations it can be any kind of physical danger agoraphobia that's why i think like phobia is sort of fixate on a specific thing and almost the the narrow focus increases the intensity Mm -hmm. versus the more you know diffuse generalized anxiety that can sort of spiral into panic attacks at at one point or another that's kind of how i see the landscape of fear Yeah. yeah oh i totally agree i think too one of the things with the phobia is a lot of times like that fear in a phobia is unfounded like there's not a reason to be afraid of this thing because like you're not necessarily going to be exposed to it or that like what the consequences of it are something that doesn't rise up to the level like going to the dentist can be a little bit unpleasant like there can be some pain there you might get some bad news or it can be expensive um and you know no one likes to get their teeth drilled but you know you're not probably not (laughs) you know (laughs) yeah which i'm sure there our listeners people are are into that Um, they're into it you know (laughs) no shame no shame perverts Unless you're getting like Dr. Giggles for your, uh, well, no, he wasn't a dentist, was he? <laughs> he was a cardiologist. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to think of who like the, the uh, evil dentist was. In, Wait, um, are we talking Seinfeld? Cause I no, thought that was a dentist. That is it. Brian Cranston's in a dentist. You're thinking yes. of Steve Martin in, um, Little Shop, Little of, Shop Horrors. of Horrors. But there's also like a slasher movie with a dentist. Oh, it might just it, be called The Dentist. I think is it, it is. Ron Howard's brother. Clint Howard. Clint I think Howard? you're right. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. yeah. Basically, yeah. other people have mined this territory. So. Yeah. Yes, yes. And you should be afraid of Clint Howard because he's a creepy little maggo weasel. But I mean, that's. <laughs> Is mm, he? I'm pretty, yeah. Yeah. I can't watch the ice cream, man. Yeah, but like I watched my daughter go to the dentist, and she, who mm-hmm. I think, like, I found it interesting when you were talking about genetics because I think I see some of my anxieties and phobias coming out with her. Like, she cannot open her mouth enough for the dentist to get in sometimes mm-hmm. because she is so afraid, you know, mm-hmm. which is something that I think we're probably going to take her to talk to this would be a, a good place to maybe drop the simpsons dentist thing like this is oh. the scraper oh, this yeah. is called the gouger <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. lisa needs braces <laughs> yes. dental plan all right Th- those things live in my brain well okay and so before and maybe this can be kind of a segue into talking about the movie because i was kind of just googling around a little bit and i 
found something called the Jaws effect. Um, and I'm going to link a couple of articles about this because that th I think the thing that I find really fascinating about this movie, and, and I'm speaking for myself, I don't find it scary to watch. Like I am not afraid while the movie is playing but as soon as I get in the water I think about it you know and it's one of those movies that kind of lives with you much I mean it's lived with all of us for what 45 40 plus years at this point you know and so I found a couple of articles about this and it's kind of related to what we were talking about earlier there's one called why are we afraid of sharks there's a scientific explanation that's from National Geographic and the article says, fear is something that we've inherited from our early ancestors. Chapman says, sharks are an animal. Biological things like animals are something that we're very prone to fear. We hear the word shark and we can't help but immediately fill in the blank after it with attack. And then he goes on to say, the fear of sharks or galeophobia is not irrational, says marine biologist Blake Chapman, um, a shark expert at the University of Queensland, Australia. Simply put, the predatory fish are scary. But, and kind of, Mike, what you were saying, like, it's slightly irrational. You're more likely to be crushed to death under a falling vending machine in your office or a cow that collapses on you in a field than you are to die in the jaws of a shark. But fears don't necessarily match facts. And the fear of being attacked by a shark is more about our emotional response than the reality. And then I found another article called Shark Phobia, The Memory of Jaws Continues to Scare Swimmers Away from the Ocean by Joe O'Connor. And I'm going to link both of these. Um, but he was talking, he found this woman who studies what she calls the Jaws effect, because apparently after this movie came out, like people who claim to be afraid mm -hmm. of swimming in the ocean, like skyrocketed. And she's talking about the way this kind of affects our brains. And I don't know if this would technically fall under a phobia category for most people, but she says... And the really interesting thing is that what's going inside on inside our brain, intense fear memories are stored in the amygdala in our old reptilian brain. Fear as an emotion was intended to keep us alive. Fear tells us we are in danger and you better protect yourself or you're going to be eaten by the predator. So fear has to act quickly. If you see that saber toothed tiger coming at you, you better run. And when our brains see jaws for the first time, our fear response kicks in and it kicks in before our conscious brain can start telling us that it is only a movie. It is only a movie it is only a movie when we stick a toe in the ocean or for some reason a lake or in extreme cases a bathtub the amygdala starts hollering get out of the water faster than we can tell it to pipe down um, and she says she has some statistics. Her survey was completed more than 25 years after Jaws was released, and the respondents were at a minimum seven years removed from having seen the film. Even so, 43% reported experiencing enduring problems with swimming and all because of you know who. And then she says, you have a better chance of being struck by lightning twice than by mm -hmm. getting eaten Which, by a shark. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, again, like if you live in a landlocked state or part of the world and you're afraid of sharks, like there may be a phobia there. Yeah. Well, I think it's also about like avoiding going swimming, whereas you may have never thought twice about going to, you know, a beach town in the ocean side or whatever before you saw Jaws, because it just introduced a possibility that is so vivid and so memorable mm -hmm. um and it just starts to make you think well you know because a lot of a lot of jaws is is rooted in basic marine biology like they have these you know they t they have hooper they have all these sort of books that uh, roy schneider is reading i never can remember mm -hmm. his name. i always just he's so virulently roy schneider in my mind <laughs> that i can never mm -hmm. remember his character he's name. a real schneider you know yeah it's just a schneider you know, so I, 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 to me, it's just interesting. It's like, it's very rare that 
a movie or a piece of fiction or something becomes so pervasive that it can affect stats on the level of a movie mm-hmm. like this, which really speaks to this movie's power. It almost mm-hmm. became like a modern day fairy tale or something, or yeah. like, you know, scary story you tell the kids that Jaws is the boogeyman, but Jaws is real. Yeah. Where it kind of blurs the lines, you know, a little bit and, and sort of introduces a phobia. Whereas in this show, we often talk about horror's power to help you cope with anxiety. This movie uh, accidentally introduced an anxiety. But I think that the fear was there. The fear is the potential for that fear is in all of us. This movie just focused it on a very specific scenario and it was just so abnormally popular mm-hmm. uh, that yeah. it that it sort of became its own phenomenon. Yeah. Well, the other other thing too is Peter Benchley, who wrote the novel that Jaws was based off of, and he's um, credited for co-writing the screenplay with Carl Gottlieb. And I would say, like, there's always talk, like, you know, like, oh, the movie is ne- not better, never better than the book. Well, in this case, trust me. And it's not yeah. just that yes. Jaws is a great movie, but Jaws the novel, it's got. It's not that great. Um, I like okay. it because it reminds me of the movie. Like I enjoy reading it because it's like mm-hmm. reading the movie, yeah. you know? But yeah, yeah, I agree with you. But Benchley later in life would go on to say that in some ways he regrets writing the book because he had a misunderstanding of sharks when he wrote it. Mm-hmm. And if he knew what sort of like fear people would learn to develop, which in some cases has kind of led people to unfairly kind of like hunt great white sharks um, mm-hmm. and, you know, treat them like they are actively seeking out like human flesh to eat. He's like, maybe, uh, maybe it wasn't, you know, the best thing in the world that I wrote this book. So. Yeah. It's unfortunate because like, I think that you should be able to make art about anything you want. And I think mm-hmm. that, you know, this movie is great and it's in my top five, probably of my favorite films, you know, um, if I, I always find it hard to pick a top, you know, ranking. Yeah. It's one of the most perfect movies ever made. And it just sucks that people took it that way. It's like, you know, and it's funny because the the big theme in the movie is people, how people respond to disaster and Mm -hmm. what they take away from it. And it's like, God damn it. (laughs) You know, like, why are people always taking the wrong thing away from experiences like this? Mm -hmm. Uh, and this was also came out in a pre-internet time before mm-hmm. anyone could Google up facts, you know, and so it just, you know, the mythology of it became more pervasive than truth. Yeah. Yeah. And what I think is interesting when we're talking about how afraid audiences are of this, that I think we find like in the movie, the townspeople aren't afraid of getting eaten by the shark, you know, like they're, I mean, I guess they are afraid because they don't actually want to go in the water, but they are more afraid of the economy crashing, which I'm not saying that's not a real fear, but that's the, that's the thing. Like you would think that they would be more afraid than we are because they're the ones that might actually get eaten, you know? Well, it's, it's just in, in, in the way the story unfolds, it's so unlikely for something like this to ever happen. And they've become so accustomed to, I mean, they're, they're so accustomed to the ocean. It's their everyday life, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and they rely so much on tourism to sustain them for the remainder of the year that like the mere thought of it is, is so dangerous. The threat of economic devastation is so acute that it's easier to deny the reality of the situation, even as it's unfolding in front of them, because they just don't want to deal with it. But at some point, they they do realize, and the you know the you know after the final attack that we see on the townspeople in the estuary where Schneider's little boy is, 
you know, they do close the beaches and they do have to deal with it. Yeah. You know, what we saw unfold in reality <laughs> is people continuing to deny because, you know, in the case of COVID, it didn't have big black eyes like a doll's eyes and thousands of pointy razor sharp teeth. You can't see it. Mm-hmm. So people were able to keep denying and keep denying and keep right. denying. Um, but that's a bigger conversation for perhaps another day. <laughs> no, well, I definitely, it, if I guess we're maybe talking about the movie, Oh yeah, yeah this kind happening. Of sliding we in. swam um, right into it. We dove yeah, in. Yeah, fine. Splashed. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry, <laughs> water words. It, it definitely, you know, and it. There were like a lot of memes like last year, like kind of hitting the hammer on the head, like you know, Mayor Larry is like a, obviously your stand-in for Donald Trump, the politician who was like everything is okay and nothing is going to stand in the way of our economic prosperity. I found him a little more sympathetic this time around watching it. I just started to reflect back. I used to travel throughout all of New England for work, um, working with small business owners that did audio video systems. Like if you didn't want to buy something from a Best Buy, you would call one of my clients because you would get like a personal level of service, whether it be a small retail shop or like two guys that work out of a van but you knew you had someone to call at like 10 PM on a Saturday if like your system wasn't working. So they would come to us because we would give them purchasing power. Um, And I would have to go to Nantucket and they always hear like, you can't come in the summer. We're way too busy. Like that's what we're doing all of our work. But during the winter you would go and everybody just hunkers down. Like if we're by and large, the Island is hibernating. And that period of time from Memorial day through Labor Day is when all of the activity is done and all that economic activity is done. So when the mayor's like, maybe we can save, when he's muttering to himself, like he's in a near catatonic state and he's just kind of muttering, maybe we can save August. Like that's a real fear. Uh, And I don't mean to downplay it. Like, Hey, Mm -hmm. we could lose our homes. We could lose our retirement. We could lose our businesses. The problem is like, it is an all or nothing enterprise. It's like, okay, we may have to, for a short period of time, allow people on the beaches, but not in the water. Like when you look on the 4th of July, the beaches are packed. Everybody still goes there, Mm -hmm. which means they're going to the hot dog stands. They're going to the arcade. They're going to buy sand cat you know toys for the beach so for what the problem is there's such like no we we cannot deal with the situation until it comes to the point of no return and that makes things worse for mm-hmm. everybody else but even when when at the end when the mayor was like right when he signed it he's like he makes a point to say you know my kid was on the beach too mm-hmm. and i think that he's really wrestling with all of his bad decisions up to that point and he realizes how many people he put in danger, including his own family. Mm-hmm. But it also says everything you need to know about how people react to the aftermath of these things, where he's still the fucking mayor in Jaws 2. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And he gets to be mayor through the end of that movie. And it's spoiler alert, Chief Brody is removed from his position as sheriff um, midway mm-hmm. through Jaws 2. Um, so... You know, it kind of tells you everything you need to know at that point. 
Yeah, and I find Jaws 2, I, which I love Jaws 2, mm-hmm. and I think that tends to be, I, I find that to be a lot more of a study about trauma, which I think is really mm-hmm. interesting. Like, he all, like he's kind of a de facto final girl in some ways, you know? Mm-hmm. But what I think is interesting, too, is, like, we see the beaches are packed on the 4th of July, but they're not going in the water. Like, he has to right. convince that family to, like, tiptoe mm-hmm. into the water. And, I mean, they look like they're marching to their deaths, you know? Yeah. <laughs> they're um, afraid to. And he, he brings his wife and he brings the grandkids with them. Yeah. I thought was a nice touch. Like, if I go down, you little <laughs> shits are going with me. I know, it's swimming faster than you, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, and the, the thing that I think is always, when I watch this mm-hmm. and I really kind of look at it rationally, um, I think, you know, there, there's no force field in the water. There, mm-hmm. like. It's funny. It's like you are going into the water. That's where sharks live. This is not the only shark in the water. And so I think mm-hmm. it's interesting where this um, this movie ends because we don't see the reaction to the town when we get back. I mean, I guess you could argue we do see it in Jaws too. But like, I wonder how how like ready to get back in the water they are after that. Just knowing there could be another shark that's that big, yeah. you know. And as we find out from Jordan Peele's fantastic analysis, like it's Jaws's brother and it's Jaws's uncle and it's Jaws's sister mm-hmm. and it's like the whole Jaws family that keeps coming back for more, you know. So it's like just killing this one shark does not take away the threat, you know. Yeah. I think what drove it home for me this time around about why the town was so adam- so fearful of shutting things down is like it hit me when the ferry pulled in and you see how many people are pouring off that one ferry. You're like, oh, yeah, this really is their livelihood. And I think, you know, what there could be a better discussion or a greater discussion of is what is the role of government in protecting people in hardship? Mm-hmm. Which is, exactly. You know, I was going to, the real shark is capitalism. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. You know, this idea I'm reading, um, like surviving on $2 a day in America. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, and there are persons there that are so poor, but they still won't look for any assistance they're entitled to because they're like, I believe in working hard. It's like, well, that's awesome, but yeah. there's nothing there for you, no matter how long you've look for you know we i mean there's the, the whole idea of that it's somehow a moral failing to mm-hmm. be poor has been has so poisoned the the uh the mindset of this country yeah. that yeah. It, you know we've lost our humanity along mm-hmm. with it yeah well so aquaphobia aquaphobia yeah shall we talk about brody because mike i see and yeah. i'm trying not to read your notes because i don't want to be spoiled but do we mm-hmm. believe that brody actually has aquaphobia so it's kind of borderline like watching it again like we'll say yes because it's just for the sake of the podcast we picked it for a topic <laughs> yeah but you know like ellen relates the story of like martin like he'll go so far as when he has to take the ferry to and from the mainland he will sit in his car the whole time. He won't mm-hmm. actually go out onto the boat. Bad Hat Harry goes to him at one point and he's like, well, you know all about you. And Bad Hat Harry, I didn't say this during the thing. Bad Hat Harry is basically like he is your prototypical old New Englander. Like mm-hmm. there are tens of thousands of Bad Hat Harrys all throughout Massachusetts. And I'll wait till you come back. Jen's going to lay the smack down on the children. I hear her being a mom. <laughs> yep. Love it. Jen's mom voice. I heard the voice. You know, it goes up an octave and then it's like, yeah. oh, that's a mom voice. Oh, I have a dad voice. It goes down oh, a sure. voice. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. We were just commenting on your mom voice. Oh, sorry. Did you hear it? Yes. <laughs> just a little bit. Just, we were like, I was like, 
listening for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, maybe the mic heard it too, and we'll yeah. leave it in. Sorry, um, I had a couple of little land sharks out there. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, like Bad Hat Harry is prototypical New Englander. Like, there's tens of thousands of him. Oh, we know all about you, Chief. You know. Oh, that there is salted earth. Yeah. I got so mad at Bad Hat Harry this time. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, and fuck his you. Saggy boobs. It's you okay know, to not want to swim. <laughs> yeah. It is saggy man boobs. Oh, yeah. It is a bad hat, too. It is. Some bad hat. I mean, I I never fully clocked the line before this watch because I don't know what I don't. Sometimes I feel when I don't watch things analytically, there's like so many little lines that Mm -hmm. I miss. And then when you're focusing on it and taking notes, I'm like, oh, I never really like internalized the meaning of that line before. But uh, during that same scene where the wife is talking to Hooper. I can't. It's Roy Schneider. What is his character's name? Brody. Brody. Martin Brody. Brody. God, it's like I'm looking at it and I forget it. <laughs> All I can think is Roy Schneider. Um, but when Brody's Brody's wife is talking about how he sits in the car during the ferry, and he goes, she says, "There's a clinical name for it, isn't there?" Drowning. And he goes, "Drowning." Drowning. And it's so yeah. dry and deadpan. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great line, and it made me realize, oh, he probably like almost drowned as a mm-hmm. child or something like that, and that's why he has this yeah. fear. And it's actually just it's it's trauma you know it's, yeah. it's a ra- it's a rational response to a trauma and i'll say like this is one of the things i love about this movie compared to the modern style of filmmaking yes where in 2021 i guarantee this movie will be remade one day and <laughs> there will be like a 10 minute flashback <laughs> yes. sequence where like brody loses his younger brother in totally fucking shove your nose into it until you suffocate yeah like i love how how underplayed it is yeah it's like yeah you don't need to like expose everyone's trauma on screen for 10 minutes and uh like we get it you can let us know and just show us through their actions that yeah yeah that's good writing it's show don't tell you know and it's it's just and it's handled so masterfully here and then you know, so so to me again, like the the trauma we do get to know more about is Quince, mm. you know, and yeah. and kind of like how they're these the journeys of these three men bring them together, mm-hmm. and I, I, I fucking love it. It's so good. <laughs> well, and the yeah. thing that I noticed this time, because I feel like every time I watch this, like we were saying, I noticed something else. And what I noticed this time was Matt Hooper telling his story because he's talking about being a kid and his boat being attacked and basically destroyed mm-hmm. while he was in it by a shark, which is fucking terrifying. And I think it's so fascinating to see, like, one, the way that rolls out in the story, because I just had not noticed it, you know? Mm-hmm. But he's telling this traumatic story, you know? And this is what I mean. It's like these three central characters of Cooper, Brody, and Quint are three men who had encounters either, you know, with water or with sharks in some capacity and had some kind of traumatic encounter and responded in three wildly different ways. Yeah. And that was what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating to see that Hooper was like, I got to know more about sharks. Like I'm obsessed with these things now. And Brody was like, Nope, no water for Mm -hmm. me, you know? Yeah. And and Quint responds with like, I got to hunt them all down and kill them. Like three like spectrum of human experiences kind of boiled down to these, these, these archetypes, you know, I think it's telling too. like one of the things, you know, that fascinates me is how bad were things in New York city? Like what did Brody see in New York city where he (laughs) had to like leave that? And he's like, I'm not only, I'm going to, I still want to be a cop, but I've seen so much horrible shit here that I need to go to a town where 
the worst crime is a karate dojo of nine-year-olds and they're like karate <laughs> chopping equipment. Yeah. Um, Even on like, an island when I'm terrified of water, yeah. you know? And he makes the point. He's like, you're not on an island when you're on the land, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it's like, and it's like, that doesn't make any sense. But he's like, nope, dry land is dry land. You know, you see like the discomfort whenever, like when he has to get on the skiff at the beginning to go pick up the Boy Scouts, like you see his like – Brody's body language, his shoulders are really tight. Mm-hmm. He's not quite hunched over. He's almost like ramrod straight, but tilted a little bit. And then there's also like the trip in the middle of the night with Hooper where they go searching for the shark. And like you see him like grasping the bottle of like Zinfandel and mm-hmm. he's just like chugging from it because like he needs all the liquid courage possible in mm-hmm. order to make this trip. But that is what led me to think, like, is it truly aquaphobia? Because this is the thing about Brody. It's, yes, he hates the water. He doesn't want any part of it. But he never lets that discomfort impede him. Mm-hmm. He's like, all right, I have a job to do. I have a family to protect. I have a town to protect. I have the, a duty to these people. So I'm not going to like it, but I'm going to go. Like, he doesn't necessarily have to go on the boat. Mm-hmm. to kill the shark he could say right. hooper you got it you guys have the radio just keep me abreast of what's going on uh i'm gonna send maybe my deputy with you or someone else you know the coast guard member could go with you but he's like no i have a responsibility to these people so even though i am uncomfortable i'm gonna go do it and that's where i get kind of borderline is it like really aquaphobia mm-hmm. you know and the things where he's like stand at the end of this skiff that is bobbing up and down and i want to take a picture to get the skill of the shark and he's like fuck your picture you Mm -hmm. know like that is not necessarily a phobia that is just a reasonable denial uh of you know like i'm not gonna possibly fall in the water so you can have a polaroid moment Mm-hmm. That shark is bigger than this boat. So no, yes. thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm actually working on a script for a remake of Jaws right now. Excellent. And it's going to be revealed that Seven is actually a prequel to Jaws. And so this is why he moved out of the big city because it's so terrible. But I never thought about that. Like, why would he move to this island? Mm-hmm. What is he running from yeah. that makes it, this... It, it, it. It, it made me think that he had some kind of traumatic incident that happened mm-hmm. or, you know, I mean, he's he's saying those lines on the boat. He's like, oh, if there's so much crime, it makes you feel like you can't make any difference and you mm-hmm. got to walk your kids home and stuff. But I always felt like that wasn't the full story, you know. Yeah. yeah. But what I would really like to think is that it's the exact plot of Hot Fuzz where he was <laughs> too good at his job and it was making the other cops look bad. So they had to send him to Podunk Town upstate. You mm-hmm. know, that that's my favorite theory. Yeah. Well, and because like logistically, and I think in the book, they talk about how this was a place that Ellen had visited and that she was familiar with Mm -hmm. it. So it could have been like, if we're looking for a place and Brody really just wants to move out of the city, this might be a logical place for them. But it seems like if he's got this fear of the water Mm -hmm. that like, let's move to a landlocked state, you know, they have that talk like on the, on the beach, like Ellen, I think at one point asks, when will I be considered an Islander? And like the woman next is like, never, like mm-hmm. unless you're born here, you're never an Islander. Like there are definitely some classism issues that are brought up uh, yeah. in pretty subtle ways in Jaws where everyone who's not an Islander is looked down upon. Even like the college student at the beginning, when he's like talking to Brody, he like makes it a point. It's like, I don't live in the Island now, but Oh, I was born here. Mm-hmm. Like it is a member. It's like, I'm not like just a summer person that comes in like this is my home like i am therefore entitled to 
the dignity and respect that comes with being from Nantucket, which is gorgeous. By it the way. is. It's yeah. Just, yeah. Well, and that's something that we have down in Nashville, too, because like we call ourselves unicorns, like the people that actually were born and raised and still mm-hmm. live here because it's a town that has very much been inundated by people mm-hmm. wanting to make it. Um, and there is a, a certain kind of pride that goes with it. It's also something Stephen King talks about a lot, which mm-hmm. I appreciate. Whereas in Chicago, it's you're not really from Chicago unless you grew up in the city. Everyone says they're from Chicago, but they're from the suburbs. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm really leaning into the... No, I like it. I forget who... It was that ran against Susan Collins for Senate in 2020 already, but like a big part, she pulled ahead of Collins throughout the campaign. And I think how Collins really forged a comeback was questioning whether that woman was really a Mainer, because I believe she was originally from Rhode Island, Mm. even though she had lived in Maine for like over 20 years and had served in the state, you know, as a state, um, congressman woman and also state rep and also a state senator and had been there for 20 plus years it was like oh but she wasn't born here and to a lot of mainers like that resonated yeah it's Um, like when leslie nope finds out she was actually born in eagleton eagleton exactly yeah (laughs) exactly well shall we move on I would like to talk, and I see in your notes, Mike, about Brody and Hooper, because this yeah. is one of the big updates or improvements on the book that I find. Mm-hmm. I love that they're never really at odds, you know? Yeah. It's nice that Hooper doesn't have an affair with Brody's wife. That's also nice. Yeah. I, Was I, that in the novel? That's yeah. so stupid. God uh, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm very glad they didn't bring that yeah. into the Yeah, because you don't need it, you know? Yeah. I think even Brody finds out and lets Hooper die, it might be hinted at in it's the novel. It's implied. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a lot. There's a lot more of like status story that goes there because he's like from this old wealthy family and they talk about like the alligator on the shirt, like Mm -hmm. implying that you spent 20 more dollars on it, you know, which Mm -hmm. is it's also interesting for me to read books written in the 70s when they talk about how much clothing costs, you know, and how like it's 20 dollars. Five whole dollars on a pair of Yeah. I actually went and looked when they had the line about like, well, $3,000 buys a lot of roast. I actually looked like, what did like a roast go for in 1975? It was about a buck 69 a pound. So you would have yeah. been able to buy over 1500, like probably about 16, 1700 roast if you were able to collect on that thing from the shark. So. And this is the kind of information you come to this podcast. Exactly. Yeah. Inflation. Yeah. I love that moment too. And it kind of speaks to the genius of the way this is, this is presented because the dock moving forward is what indicates that the shark is coming. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's, it's, fucking genius in yeah. this really light comedic moment too, Mm because those two are idiots and that's a terrible plan. But you're right. Brody and Hooper are, an example of like positive masculinity and positive male bonding mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. ways that, you know, we don't often see in horror. Yeah. Yeah. This whole movie is very like doodly and has like big dad energy, you know, yeah. um, but, and not in a bad way, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I feel like it doesn't bother me because it is not how masculinity is typically represented. And, and you have these three different characters that represent three very different like approaches to masculinity masculinity they're just three very different personalities but they almost like harmonize in an unexpected way and just the the rapport between the three of them um is so entertaining and delightful to watch and these three amazing actors you know mm-hmm. um so it just ends up being you know it's a very positive movie in that way there's there mm-hmm. the toxic masculine and also like 
Brody has a really genuinely loving relationship with his wife and his Mm -hmm. wife is like cool as hell. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's just, even though the, obviously there's not a lot of like really fleshed out female characters in this story, you know, no one is objectified. Nothing is presented as a cliche. Everything feels really fully realized, even though there may not be a lot of those characters that are, that happen on on screen, you know? Yeah. Um, Nothing, nothing feels flat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they all it's feel impressive. like human beings, you know, yeah. like mm-hmm. these are this is how I would react. And that's why I think we can like see ourselves in so many of these characters and why this movie has continued to endure the way it has. And like there are lots of movies that I find fascinating because I see them as kind of like a study in masculinity, even though that might ne- not necessarily be the intention. Like I'm writing a thing about Shutter Island right now, which we have a whole episode on. So I'm not going to like dig into that. Mm-hmm. But I find that to be a study in masculinity in a lot of like. Like, what does that actually mean? And I think here we see, like, that there is a spectrum of what being a man can be. But it's mm-hmm. it's just like, this is just what it is. This is not because we're trying to no. present these as different types of men. Even though there is an element of Quint, like, boat shaming them, you know? Right. Well, yes. not only do you, you see three examples of masculinity, you see how the different pairs interact with one another. Like, the relationship between Cooper and Brody is different between Hooper and Quint. Mm-hmm. The relationship mm-hmm. between Quint and Hooper is different than the relationship relationship between Quint and Brody. Mm-hmm. Like what you see, like number one, there's like a kind of a, when you watch Hooper and Brody interact with one another, there's almost a mutual respect between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Like Brody immediately trusts Hooper's expertise and mm-hmm. is like trying to convince Mayor Larry, like, look, we brought this person on for a reason. He really knows his stuff. There's a reason to believe him. He's here to help us. And he keeps going back and pulling Hooper back in. Like, I know, like this guy's a buffoon, but we got to get him on our side. Like he, mm-hmm. you know, and then at the same token, like Hooper gets what Brody is up against. He mm-hmm. understands that like Brody is fighting an uphill battle with the mayor, with the city council, with the small business owners and townspeople, he understands like, you know, it's easy to go in and say, you need to do this, this, and this. What are you all idiots? And Mm -hmm. to a certain extent he does, but he's also like, I get what you're up against. I'm not going to like try to make things more difficult for you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just as simple as they look at each other and laugh Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and these moments of stress. And it's such a delightful little thing. And like that, it's, you know, everything you just said about their relationship Mm -hmm. is revealed in those moments. And I love it. And they meet each other in contrast to all of these like local idiots who are just basically diving into the water to go Mm -hmm. try to kill this shark, you know? So I think that kind of like, they're both united in this, like we see the bigger picture here in a way that a lot of people don't. Well, and another thing that I think is interesting about Brody that I think another movie would do differently is like, it bugged me how bad had Harry shamed him for not wanting Mm -hmm. to swim, but it's really not that bad. And I find, I think like they could have had a lot more townspeople like mocking Brody for this fear that he has. And it's really refreshing that we have a man who has a fear that some might say is irrational or a phobia. Mm -hmm. And it's just presented as like, this is just a part of who he is. You know, it doesn't weaken him in any way. And 
you get the feeling it's something that's talked about. It's a quirk, mm-hmm. like because number one, like Brody's going to be fascinating because he's an outsider uh-huh. coming onto the island, and then he's going to be an outsider in a beach community that hates the water. Like that right. is something that is going to be the topic of gossip around the coffee counters, at the local bars, at the local sewing circles. Like it's something that would be discussed. Mm-hmm. So even though it's only one person that says it you know that there are like a hundred others and they're probably in some ways like look at him, judge him unfavorably because of it. Because yeah. Like, oh yeah. You know. And it's, well, I don't even know if I had a fully formed thought there. I guess I just realized that these three central characters are all also outsiders to this insular no. community, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, I mean, you have Clint who's kind of, exi- he's, he's embedded in the like Fisher boating community, but mm-hmm. he's, a veteran and definitely like not chummy uh, as it were with the the others. (laughs) Uh Uh, And then you have Brody who's completely, who's new to the town and then actual outsider Hooper from the big fancy Institute, Mm -hmm. you know, you have these sort of degrees of otherness in all three of them. And that also brings them together. And I have these two kind of competing thoughts or maybe adjacent thoughts because I I agree that they are probably quietly judging him, but I don't think that were he like a triathlon or like an Olympic swimmer sheriff, I don't think they would have any more or less trust in him. Like I think Mm -hmm. their reaction to what he's trying to do would be the same because it's not based on him. And I also think that because he doesn't have like this is what I was thinking when I was watching it last night because he wouldn't want to get in the water anyways it's almost easier for him to close the beaches because Mm -hmm. it's not a personal loss for him you know yeah well I think what I like too is one of the things I like about Brody is he's not like a character that is like banging the drum the whole time like we have to do this like Mm -hmm. he can be swayed so yeah. when, you know, when he's really cornered by the mayor and like the four councilmen, like, and they have like, it's <laughs> almost like the um, Nantucket mafioso, it, mm. uh, you know, basically coming like, you know, we're going to make you an offer you can't refuse about keeping the beaches open. <laughs> it's like um, that anchor jacket is the red scrunchie yeah, and Heather's, you know. He's he's willing to say like, okay, like you want to keep the beaches open. He looks at the coroner like, you'll stand by this. That's fine. Like even after, you know, Kittner is killed. He's like, all right, you know, we'll close. I didn't agree to 24 hours, but I guess that's what it is. Like Mm -hmm. he's constantly fighting the battle, but not to the point where he's like, he's not going over the top. Like he can be swayed in the other direction. He's like, I don't want, he doesn't want to rock the boat per Mm -hmm. se. (laughs) Yeah. Cause he gets it, you know? Can we talk about Quint and how I think like the parallels or the juxtaposition between Quint and Hooper is really fascinating. Yeah. But I also think there's a gentleness to the way that Quint deals with Brody. Mm -hmm. Uh, You see the scene where like he unties the wrong knot and Quint puts the blame more on Hooper for bringing this stuff on to begin with, which is not equipment he works with, but he like very gently pulls Brody aside. He's like, Hey, next time you need to pull something, just, just let me know what you need. Mm -hmm. Right. It is interesting. It's I, I don't know where it comes from, but it's like a, a, a paternal a paternal feeling. There's a respect there. Like there is a respect that goes like that's there because he knows Brody hates the water. But at the same time, like talking about masculinity, you know, one of the things you can say is like men often feel it's their responsibility to fix things. Mm-hmm. Am I guilty of that sometimes? 
Yes. <laughs> it's like, nope, this is the mess. It is my responsibility to clean this mess. I will do it. So there's part of like Quint that must look at Brody and say, I know how much you hate the water. I know this is terrifying for you, yet you are facing your fear and manning up. And there is a respect that comes along with that just for making the effort. But he's also very much like, yes, you are the sheriff on land. This is my boat and you will do what I say. I don't give a fuck if you want to ch- don't want to chum hoop. And I don't like Hooper, but Hooper drives the boat. That's mm-hmm. his role. You throw the chum. Yeah. But yeah, I really find that facet in, in Brody, even though he'll grumble, he still does it. He doesn't pull rank. He's not like, I am the town sheriff. I'm writing the check. He's like, we all have our own roles to fulfill and we're going to fulfill those roles and we're going to help one another even if we grumble. Yeah. And I kind of reach, read a lot of that as like Brody doesn't challenge Quint in a way mm-hmm. that Hooper does. Cause I feel like there's a, also a lot of like old school versus new school or like technology oh, yeah. versus like mm-hmm. old timey see knowledge, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting to look at Quint and the way he sees this as like a personal vendetta, you know, which mm-hmm. is why like he smashes the radio, which is such a self-sabotaging thing. And it's like his fear really is being powerless against these sharks again, which would take him back to this traumatic moment that he talks about of being in the water, which, by the way, is just one of the most terrifying stories I've ever heard in my life in this movie and like knowing the real story of what is the USS Indiana? Indianapolis. Indianapolis, yeah. There is definitely the tension that arises from old school versus new school. You Mm -hmm. have them always like when he grabs Hooper's hands and he's like, you know, these aren't sea hands. They've been counting money their whole life, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's this immediate dismissal of who Hooper is and what Hooper represents. And Hooper's like very open. He's like, yep, I come from a lot of money. I'm not going to always say, how do you pay for all this equipment? Oh, we're very rich. Mm -hmm. You know, just like there's that immediate thing. And, and the, what, the reason they're hunting the shark, they come from different reasons. But also, Hooper's a stubborn prick at times. Like, Hooper gets it wrong. Mm-hmm. Like and he won't admit it. And Quint's like, and Quint calls him on it. And I think that's a great yeah. moment for Quint when he's like, it shows that you're not smart enough. You college boys aren't smart enough to know when to admit when you're wrong. Because mm-hmm. he's right. right. And there's he's that totally moment. right in that moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Later when when Hooper doesn't turn the boat around fast enough and they miss the chance to land another barrel on the shark. And Quint doesn't have to say anything. He just it's and it's framed so perfectly. Just uh-huh. he's leaning back and he's got that glint in his eye. And by the way, like I dated a girl for two years whose dad looked and sounded just like Quint. Oh, wow. And I think at oh, one Lord. point he, he had a sore tooth. He pulled it out with like pliers. And, <laughs> like Ron Swanson. Like, 50s, he was playing in an Irish soccer league, like cleat, like fucking banged up with cleat. So yeah, like we'd be at her house and she's like, do you want to fool around? And I'm like, no, your dad's home. <laughs> I was a grown 25-year-old man (laughs) that was like, nope, we will not be doing anything here. I am going to sit on the other side of the room. Of your dad. (laughs) Your dad is scary. But just that look he gives him, like he knows. There's a glint he just knows. Mm -hmm. But over time, Hooper starts to develop a respect for Quint. And I think that respect is given back. I think that bonding scene with the three of them. God damn, it's so good. I love that. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. 
I just, that whole final sequence of the film from the moment they get on the Orca till the end of the movie, I mean, it just has so many peaks and valleys. They manage to keep it so entertaining, despite the fact that most of what you're seeing is like the intricacies of like seafaring. Mm-hmm. Like attach the rope to this thing and the hook, the hook, what could he do? Can go mm-hmm. fore and aft and starboard, starboard. You know, but 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 because it's all bolstered by every everything is is happening to display either some kind some kind of progress they're making with the shark or something about their mm-hmm. uh, relationships, and that's what keeps the action from feeling stagnant at any point. And then they give you those little peaks and valleys so that you know you can have uh, the great moment with like you want to come up here and chum this shit, and the shark appears, mm-hmm. and then you know, and then they get the bonding, the lull of the bonding, and then that ominously builds to that final sequence it's just a fucking masterclass in pacing and i'm mm-hmm. just obsessed with it and it's like but the character building is built into it and it's like i think so many action movies and horror movies and get it wrong by divorcing these things from each other and this is just watching the seamless blend of all the elements that make for great storytelling yeah i'm just nerding out over here guys <laughs> i was gonna ask jen you mentioned the moment when quint smashes the radio Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, like, what are your takes and why Quint does that? I take it. I It feels like a Moby Dick moment to me. Like this. Is, is. Now, and I will claim I have not read that book. Um, But mm-hmm. like, it's like this is my monster to combat. And it's yeah. going to rob me of this catharsis, this ability to overcome my fear. If somebody else, if we go home and then like the Coast Guard comes out or if somebody mm-hmm. else gets this shark. um, Yeah. And I guess that is kind of rooted in that trauma that he felt is like this is his chance to to overcome mm-hmm. it. Kind of the way probably what led Matt Hooper to want to stay study sharks it's like you have these moments and some people react by running the other way and some people react by trying to know more about it so that they can conquer it and neither one of them is right or wrong i'm not making a judgment but yeah i get that that's the feeling i get from that moment and it it also kind of reminds me of the shining which i think is a totally different thing but yeah you get that visual language of quint in his cabin on land where there are hundreds of shark jaws Mm -hmm. you know immediately how he's reacted to that trauma is to like seek it and kill it yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and there how many or is there ever going to be enough like this one probably is not going to you know sate his need Mm -hmm. although this would probably be the largest one he's ever caught and what i think is funny when i look at hooper and quint is and what I think is part of the genius of this movie is that neither of their methods work. You know, Brody is the one that actually defeats the monster. And it's not really because of any like moral superiority or any lesson the movie is trying to make. It's just that's what happens. You know, that's mm-hmm. the way it shakes out. Well, yeah. And it couldn't have happened without some element that each of them brought to the table because right. Hooper brought the air canisters, Quint got them out on the water and and um Brody's the one who, who fires the final shot with his big, you know, because of his cop mm-hmm. skills, I guess. I don't know. I don't want yeah. to give him any credit for being a cop here, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's it's the harmony of these three men facing their fears together, and I think it's, you know, that's that's the positive way to look at it, and mm-hmm. I think that, you know, Quint could arguably be having the most maladaptive response to it, but he also mm-hmm. suffered clearly the greatest yeah. amount of trauma. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, you know, I just, it's like, I love when a movie that feels so simple and like summer blockbustery can be like unpacked to be this really beautiful 
a display of how people react to, to trauma. It's just, I love it. It, yeah. it makes me geek out. <laughs> and as much as I love when I can feel like a movie is really trying to tell me that or trying to show me that, like a movie like The Babadook, I also mm-hmm. love it. It's like, this is just what human beings do. Uh-huh. And this is how human beings will react. Different types of human beings and different people would react in different ways. And this is what we can take from it. Because that's what life is. You know, we are all different yeah. people. And as we've seen over the last year, we have all reacted in different ways to varying yeah. degrees of success. And Mike, you mentioned something in our in our mental health topic section about this being like an example of exposure therapy. And I don't want to yeah. like step on our next episode, mm-hmm. but I was kind of curious about what you think about that. Well, I love it. I love that. Like, you know, basically, I mean, in exposure therapy, it will save it mostly for a couple of weeks from now, but you would slowly build up to it. Like you mm-hmm. might do a lot of visualization. Then you would do like some hand holding with someone, like a counselor to walk you through it before you take bigger and bigger steps. Here you kind of jump in. Like just the fact that he gets on the skiff to get the Boy Scouts is a form of exposure therapy. Mm -hmm. Sitting by the beach and looking on the water is exposure therapy. They live right on the dock. And he doesn't tell his children, like, don't play in the water. At the beginning, he says, don't play in the swing set. It's rusty. So he's okay with others. You know, he's not saying don't, you know. He doesn't want them in the boat once like he knows there's a shark. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's basically like what greater form of exposure therapy can there can there be, but you're in the boat in the middle of the ocean getting hunted by a man eating shark. And then after you win, you have to float and sw- swim home. And the movie ends on like just a perfect, perfect capper of, of a line mm-hmm. where he's like, mm-hmm. you know, I used to really hate the water and Hoop was like, oh, I can't imagine why. Like, yeah, it's just right. perfect, it's perfect, you know? It it wraps it all up so perfectly. And I think the, yeah. the used to is the key there. I think by, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't say, man, I hate the water. He says, like, I used to hate the water. Mm-hmm. And he faced his fears, his he confidence, his demons. It. And, it, and it's almost like he, you know, if he thinks psycho- like, you know, psychoanalytically or subconsciously about why he maybe was drawn to living on an island is so maybe there's some part of his subconscious mm-hmm. that wanted to face to his beat fear it, yeah. and, and, to, and to overcome it. And I kind of really like that as a yeah. journey for him. And he just didn't know what he was, what he had bargained for yeah. he, when, he, yeah. when he chose to come there. Yeah. Now let's, let's contrast that with Quint's response because up to the point of being asked about the tattoo he's removed, Quint is probably having the most rational experience on the boat. He's actually pretty calm and collected throughout. Mm-hmm. He's giving orders, and but the orders, like he's doing it in a way where he's not barking them out. Like he's very measured because this is what he does. Like he drinks and he hunts sharks. So he knows what he's doing and he has a way that he expects sharks to behave. And as long as they behave that way, he's good. Mm-hmm. As soon as like the tattoo is brought up and he relates that story that's when things start to go like having to relive that trauma, having to think about 1100 men entering, but only 300 and change coming out, you know, like shark 316 says, I just ate your crew. But he basically, from the moment he has to relive that experience, the next thing he does is he smashes the radio. Like that's when he mm-hmm. like beats the hell out of the bat. That's when he drives the skiff back at an unsafe speed that basically leaves them stranded in the middle of the ocean with no way to communicate. And when Hooper and Brody are like, what are you doing? Slow down. Or they just ask him questions. He ignores them. Mm -hmm. And there's this look like you basically watch Quint go mad 
because a he's had to relive his trauma, but b this fucking shark is not acting like any other shark he's ever met. Mm-hmm. He's like it has two barrels in it. It can't go down. It has mm-hmm. it can't stay down. And there's three barrels in it. There's no way for it to get. I smart. shot the shark six times. Yes, you know he's like <laughs> Doctor Loomis before there was Doctor Loomis. <laughs> but there's three barrels, and he's like this shark is not behaving like a shark should behave. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do anymore. And he even that he even goes so far as to say, "Hey Hooper, what do you think you can do with this thing?" Like mm-hmm. he's like, "I am no longer the expert. I need to turn control over to someone else." And for Quint to do that, a guy it's who's commanded, huge. it's huge. Mm-hmm. And to do it to the college boy, and to mm-hmm. allow the college boy to use these new methods, like he knows, like he's losing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I that's a moment. See, and he's the one that I'm not super drawn to, but now that mm-hmm. I think we're kind of unpacking, um, he's just got a little more sea codger than I'm really into. Yeah. But I, I do th- kind of relate more to him as like a representation of trauma, which, I mean, I think Brody kind of takes on some of those traits in the sequel. We see him acting a yeah. little more erratically than we do in in this movie. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just Quint is just such a great, iconic character. I, mm-hmm. I think, I, you know, I've never really unpacked my thoughts on him before now. And, yeah. I, you know, and so it was all more operating subconsciously for me. But, I, I mean, it's just great. It's great storytelling. It's great character development. And one of my favorite performances ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, he's just a, a joy to watch. Mm-hmm. And, and his death always gets me. I mean, no. I feel like the, that watching him get like chomped on by the shark yeah. when I was a kid it was always like one of those moments where I wanted to look away, but I actually never could. And it just like would haunt my dreams, you know? And I, I, I remember not fully understanding even his character or, or the significance of that moment, but it is very like Moby Dick, like being destroyed by your obsession, you know, um, it's just, it's a lot. There's yeah. a visceral snap as the shark bites through his spinal cord Mm-hmm. And then you just see the body limp and the shark float off. It's yeah. It's oh, you know oh. that's that the reason why like home theater was invented was for like just little audio cues like that. It's totally yeah. And I just want to emphasize how much it would have dampened the effect of this film, like water on bread, if the shark was CGI. Oh, totally. Oh yeah, yeah. That's like the, those seeing him in the mouth of this thing and and seeing it snap down i mean you just can't imitate that i'm no. sorry not to be a total snob here again but i just can't no. help it no i oh, agree yeah and it's been talked about by almost every i mean any book about jaws any podcast about jaws talk like the shark didn't work mm-hmm. like the shark right. only worked a quarter of the time they wanted it in the movie much much more and i think to the film's benefit the shark is barely in the movie yeah and it's not until about an hour and maybe 25 minutes in that you actually get a look at it. Mm-hmm. As it should be. I mean, yeah. again, happy, happy little accidents. Right. You know? Yeah. That become it, iconic and live way past their, you know. The only other thing I want to bring up is, is John Williams score and uh, not the main theme, but the, it's at the hour and 15 mark when they get on the boat. I think I marked it at an hour and 14 when, you see the shot of the boat going through the shark jaws, that beautiful, iconic shot. 
So you have like almost like a 50 minutes left in this movie and the music shifts. The music becomes more buoyant, more exuberant. Like it very much sprightly. Oh yeah. It becomes like very much like boys having an adventure. Mm -hmm. Um, Totally. That really struck me on this watch more than it ever has before. Because these are like, if this movie is made now, I think like that last act is going to be very dour, very Mm -hmm. serious. You know, it's, but here it's like three men, like they're having the time of their lives. Like they're fucking singing sea chanties. They're boozing it up. They're fishing. They're telling jokes. You know, they're, you know, they know that what they're doing is very serious and like the town's livelihood depends on it, but they're having a good time and doing it. And they're like, it feels like three little boys having an adventure. And I like love that about this movie. And mm-hmm. the music to me is the biggest cue that that's what's going on. Yeah, totally. Because I think, yeah, if you put other music over that, and that's where it feels like a, a real fusion of mm-hmm. Spielberg and John Williams, because it reminds me of Spielberg's, like, it reminds me of E.T. It reminds mm-hmm. me of Super 8. You know, it's like that, let's have a, a boyhood adventure, mm-hmm. like Spielberg moment. Like, he can't yeah. resist making it fun yeah. on some level. Right. I think that's what keeps this from feeling like a horror movie on some level. Well, and I like it because it feels honest, you know, it's like your whole life is not your fear, you know, and you still mm-hmm. have these fears that pop up and they do kind of take over sometimes. But then you also have like moments of joy and moments of excitement in between. And it's I think a lot of movies really lean into this and it just becomes really oppressive. And I think that's one thing that Spielberg does not really lean into that much, at least in his earlier stuff or the stuff that I'm familiar with. And I wanted to kind of wrap us up with my favorite quote from this movie. (laughs) And I just want to thank IMDb for um, memorializing this quote. It's from Quint, and it's in brackets, in shark's mouth. Ah! And that's the whole quote on IMDb, and I think it's just amazing. It's one of my favorite moments of the internet, and I will post it because it's just so funny. Like, what the fuck is this? Is the quote? Because, and I'm kidding. It's not my favorite quote of the movie, but it's just hilarious. You kind of just have to see it. I just, love when things like that you just notice. It's like I noticed that uh, the Zap Ruder film had like a 76 percent on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. <laughs> and I was just maybe just laugh so hard. I was I like. Know. What were the negative reviews? Okay, I right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so let's I guess pull into the shore. Um, the the ham <laughs> is circling out to ocean. I don't know exactly where I'm going with this, but just shark wrapping up moment. Just go with the In, flow. It, ah, there we go. Yeah, the tides are coming into our other sections. So uh, let's talk about, um, I don't really see any other mental health topics in this movie, unless there's anything we want to bring up. I think we've talked mm-hmm. about trauma and phobias. Yeah, we're good. Okay, cool. I think, okay. yeah. And, Those yeah. are the big themes to me. I think so, yeah. Um, okay, so other movies we see um, fear uh, or phobia or this kind of type of phobia represented in. And I, the only one that really comes to mind other than, um, you know, kind of the obvious shark movies is um, The Affair, which I don't know if I would really recommend. But there's a character there who's afraid of water so much that she will not take a bath. And I don't mm-hmm. want to spoil anything, but, you know. Also, Josh uh, Jackson is pretty dreamy in that show. So, I'll just give a little shout out to Crawl, which was um, oh yes, mm. twenty nineteen or twenty. You know, I think it was released in twenty nineteen. I, mm. I was surprised, but you know, very tight little movie. Nothing compared to Jaws, but 
you know, some of the same themes and water obviously playing such a huge theme in it. Mm-hmm. And then on the, the flip side of it, I'll just give a shout out to one of my favorite, like kind of zany over the top movies, uh, which may have been inspired by this is a day of the animals starring Leslie Nielsen in a mm-hmm. non-comedic role as a horrible <laughs> man, just a ridiculous movie where all the animals start attacking people because of like atmospheric problems. Yeah. <laughs> There's like, um, Joe Dante's Piranha, which is, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like a beat for beat. There's Grizzly, which is like Jaws with a bear. Mm-hmm. Now, movies of that nature. I think there's like Open Water. Yeah. So, uh, The Sharknado. Meg. Sharknado, The yeah. Meg, you know, all the usual. <laughs> I, the like, I like The Shallows a lot. And 47 Meters Down made me sick to my stomach when they mm-hmm. were in the middle, which I'm now thinking more in terms of agoraphobia. And I'm really interested. All right. Well, shall we move into our... <gasps> Uplifting moment. Yes. And now it's time for an uplifting moment. Maybe I should add some like water sounds to our harp. A harp underwater. This is where we share any grounding and coping techniques or any self-care that's been particularly effective for us. Grounding and self-care are little tips, tricks, mantras, or practices that help us get through hard days or hard moments. And self-care is anything we do that makes us feel good or feel better. Um, and I have been coming up empty again, too. I think I'm just really struggling to adjust to living in a new place, you know, more so than I thought. So I've kind of been getting down on myself for not being productive and not getting stuff like I pitched an article that got accepted and I just have not been able to make myself write it. And I've kind of just been not getting mad at myself about that and just mm-hmm. saying it's OK, you know, it's OK to take your foot off the gas every once in a while. Yeah. You know, that's good. So, yeah, that's mine. And I posted something about this the other day. I tweeted it and I got a lot of kind responses. And the only reason I think I bring this up is because I really struggle with how to respond when people post about their mental health online. Like, I don't know if a like is going to what a like is going to imply Mm. to people. And so I just kind of wanted to say if you see or (laughs) do the people that responded, thank you to the people that saw it and didn't know how to respond. Thank you. Like, it's, it's just there's no right way to really respond to that, yeah. but just people showing up and, you know, anyways, so I don't know. That's convoluted, but there it is. That's my life right now. So <laughs> who amongst us can claim that their life is not convoluted. At the moment? <laughs> True. So, yeah. I, you know, I've been having an interesting time lately, so I won't go into that, but I'll just acknowledge some gratitude for friends. My friends are great. And my friend Tony got me a one of a very limited number of cameos from Lil Nas X after hearing me like gush about Lil Nas X Mm -hmm. a bazillion times. So if if you follow me on social, you saw me screaming. So I will just be grateful for getting a pep talk from Lil Nas X, which is not something many people on this world can say right now. So (laughs) I am. So our school year ended and we like didn't, end the year we survived the year Mm -hmm. so i am grateful for that and like it's been three it's day three of summer vacation and i took like day one to just i don't think i did anything that day i just like i am gonna not even watch movies like i'm just gonna lie on the couch and look at the ceiling and oh god Mm -hmm. it's wonderful no that's not true i worked in the afternoon because i did my counseling load that afternoon but that was at that counseling one-to-one doesn't often feel like work to me because I really enjoy it. Like it's fun and I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, I enjoy, I love doing that. Like it's what I was born to do, I think. But like the past couple days, like 
made it a point to get to the gym. I had to go get my knee looked at pre-surgery. And I'm like, I can just go to the bookstore right now and poke around for an hour. And I had the peak suburban punk dad moment yesterday where I was mowing the lawn while singing Waiting Room out loud while it blasted through my headphones. So Fugazi's Waiting Room, and like <laughs> singing along as I like, you know, I am a patient boy. I mow, I mow, I mow. So, you know, it was basically, you know, it's been well, it's been needed, but like, I'm just so far, like it's going to be a summer where like I relax a lot, but also get like a ton of shit done. So in a things I want to do as opposed to things I feel like I have to do. So mm-hmm. that sounds lovely. Oh. I know. I remember those days. I'm September like, oh. 1st, I'm going to be like, I don't want to go to school. <laughs> I remember those days as well. Yeah. I'm like, oh. Um, well, we want to hear from you. Do you have any bad hats? Do you know anyone named Harry? What's the wackiest thing you've ever printed on a jacket? <laughs> I think I was going for the anchor there. It was late when I wrote these. Anyway, <laughs> or just what's on your mind? And you can answer all of these questions and more by following us at Pod on all the socials. You can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group. It's a private and moderated group where we can share about episode topics, mental health stuff, or anything else that's on your mind. And you can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to share privately. And if you have a moment, please leave us a five-star rate and review. It really helps other people find out about the pod, and it makes us feel good. So thank you to those who have... Makes me feel good. Yeah, Yeah, you know. Thank you. We could all use a little feeling good. Um, So what's up next for us? Well, we have another episode in our phobia series, and we are about 90% sure what it's going to be, but we're not going to announce it just yet. And it's going to be a different phobia, kind of what we talked about at the beginning. But before that, we have a comfort horror episode planned, and it's one that really scares me. So I'm looking forward to talking about it. Dax from the Watched Once Never Again podcast Mm -hmm. is joining us to talk about It Follows. So interested to uh, hear his thoughts on that one. Same. Yeah. (laughs) We are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us here and there along with some other great pods by going to consequence.net. And Mike, where can we find you online? You know, can I just, can I take a moment and thank our patrons? Yeah. So, and I'll do really quick where you can find me after that. So we started the Patreon account because we're a podcast in 2021. Uh, and these student loans <laughs> yep. aren't going to pay themselves. We haven't posted anything yet. We're working on that, but we've already had like a number of awesome responses. I think we posted like our first 10 or so a while back, but mm-hmm. I just want to give a quick thanks to a few folks that have like stepped up and have like joined on for mm-hmm. us. We have like Lisa M uh, has joined on at the Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter level. Uh. We have Dustin uh, I just say Dustin because I cannot pronounce the last. It's Dustin Spencer Leroux. Leroux. Uh, Dustin, thank you so much. You've joined up at the Mads Mickelson as Hannibal Lecter level, Ooh. as has Sasha Gibson, Lindsay Moore. Thank you both for joining on at the Mads Mickelson level. And then at the in between those, we have like John Atanas and Eliza both joining at the Anthony Hopkins is, is Hannibal Lecter level. So I am going to be working tonight and tomorrow and getting some of the first patron things out. I did email everyone to say, hey, get your questions in, and one person's responded, but we'll have our bonus episode up. 
big thank you to two people right now first like uh patrick anderson who runs he basically moderates the facebook group mm-hmm. he has gone on at the 50 dollars level where he Ooh. is going to get to choose the topic in a movie and appear <laughs> as a uh in an interview to talk why he picked that so we're going to be contacting you that's the 50 dollars level right there 50 bucks. It's a one-time $50 payment. <laughs> We're not going to ask that every month. And, uh, also, and knowing Patrick Anderson, I'm not at all nervous about what he's going to do. I know. I know. His, <laughs> no, he's great. His, yes. We already had him great. on our one, one Cut of the yeah. Dead comfort horror um, episode. He's a great But he is into person. like movies like Thanom, uh, Thanatomorphies, which is like completely disgusting body horror. <laughs> I love it. Can't wait. Also, yeah. and I apologize if I mispronounce this, to call Nicole Denoyers. Uh, I believe it's Canadian. Ah. So I'm probably mispronouncing, but Nicole sent a lovely message asking about this level. And she also like $50 to pick a topic in a movie. So we only are doing like five of those and two, like it blows me away that like people have done this and like, I know something I never am is like speechless right now. So um, if you want to become a patron, Go to patreon.com psychoanalysis podcast. The level start at three bucks and, you know, sign on today. So as far as I'm concerned, you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian on the tweets. Uh, You can find my other show, The Pod and the Pendulum, wherever you get your podcasts. And there's been a number of listeners that have migrated over and you hear a different side of me, hear them like (laughs) serious and stoic and empathetic. And uh, on the part of the pendulum, I've changed how I do that. My own persona a bit on that show, because this is serious, Mike. And there I have shifted a little bit towards like, am I the asshole, Mike? Like I am a (laughs) living Reddit. I'm not that bad, but I get to be a little bit more jokey at times. Uh, and Lindsay Travis, my co-host, is so lovely to put up with me, uh, <laughs> and she is so much smarter than I am that it's mm. it's great. I'm grateful. <laughs> so yeah, there you go. That was my big long-winded spiel. <laughs> Laura, where can we find you? Well, thanks. I agree. Thank you to all of our uh, Patreon folk, our our good friends, our little baby angels. Thank you. And you can find me on Twitter at underalls u n d e r l l s. Much like the swim trunks that are just soaked with ocean water blood (laughs) and piss from from your fear of of seeing a shark that's uh, (laughs) at underalls u-n-d-e-r-a-l-l-s on twitter that's where you can find me making lovely commentary like i just said out of my mouth Uh, i'm occasionally on halloweenies and losers club podcasts as well talking shit taking names and you can find me at Jim Ferratu on all of the social places. You can also find me co-hosting the Losers Club podcast. And we are in the thick of our lazy story coverage. And I'm also going to be on the Lord of the Flies episode that's coming up soon. So I'm excited. And I think Laura and I are going to have an episode together down the road. Although I need to look at the calendar to make sure it's, I know uh, what it is. It's, it, yeah, it's not even out yet, the book. It's like... Oh, Billy, Billy, Summers. Bu- Billy Summers. Yeah, the new one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm excited about that. Um, and you can also find me on uh, White Ladies in Crisis, which is the new um, limited series podcast that Joe Lipset and Gina Radcliffe, both former <laughs> guests, and I are doing about the show Physical. And it is it has been a lot of fun. And there's a lot of mental health discussion there, too. So mm-hmm. if you enjoy this show, you'll like that one, too. Um 
Uh, and that's on the Anatomy of a Screen pod squad pod feed with also a, a lot of fantastic shows, including um, Nicole Goble, who was on our Children of the Corn episode. And Chandler has a show who was on our The Witch episode. So, you know, we're just, it's all one big pod family yeah. and it's just fun. So I feel like, honest to God, doing this this show and my other show, like I've developed a new set of friends and people I respect yeah. and the greater appreciation and exposure to their work. And like, it really is like more so than anything else I've ever done in the horror community is like probably been the most positive experience and most rewarding experience. I totally agree. I have met so many delightful yeah. people that I never would have really been in contact with. Yeah. Well, and that's our episode on Jaws. Thank you so much for joining We're us. Tired and want to go to bed. <laughs> yeah. We're tired and we, we want to stop to podcasting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Please make sure to take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And let's sign off. We came here to chew bubble gum. I forgot our sign off. Yeah. <laughs> we came we here to chew chum. Chew chum, yes. yeah, chumble chum. Chum, chum, bubble chum. And take care of ourselves. And we're all out of that oh, stuff. Oh, bubble gum. We're all out of bubble chum. We're all out of bubble gum. Consequence Podcast Network.